Welcome back to Venture Studio, the podcast where your host, Dave Lerner, entrepreneur, angel investor in 60-plus companies, and director of entrepreneurship at Columbia University, interviews the angel investors and venture capitalists who make up New York City's entrepreneurial ecosystem. I am your producer, Kevin Weeks. This week, Julian Cunahan of Red Sea Ventures joins us on the podcast. Check out our entire archive of interviews, including Dave's epic two-part series with Bitcoin Jesus Roger Ver at VentureStudio.org or on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now Google Play. Remember to subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at VentureStudio to stay up to date. In today's episode, Julian discusses Red Sea Ventures origins and generalist investment strategy. Then Dave and Julian go deep into drones, Bitcoin, and virtual reality. And now let's head on up to the Venture Studio office with Dave Lerner and Julian Cunahan. In the office, baby. Going up. Julian, it's great to have you on the show. How are you? Hey, Dave. Doing well. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start with you telling us a little about Red Sea Ventures. You're here in New York City. Sure. Happy to. So Red Sea Ventures is a seed series A fund based here in the city. Been around for uh, over two years now. Um, And we're a generalist fund investing into seed stage companies, um, you know, all across the all across the country. And from the looks of your uh, portfolio in over 30 companies already, very diverse portfolio. I couldn't make out a, a theme. I guess that's why you say generalist. You're interested in, in, in everything, correct? Yeah. So when I first joined Scott in the winter of 2014, um, obviously kind of kicking off a new fund. And for a seed stage fund, I think it's important to optimize top of funnel mm-hmm. uh, and just see as much as possible. So being generalist is is one way to achieve that. Uh, there's some academic papers on whether um, specialization brings better returns, and the general consensus seems to be you either want to be highly specialized or uh, very very general. And since Scott and I don't have specific uh, technical backgrounds, uh, you know, probably best to be general. I see a couple of companies I. I recognize here certainly Nest, but uh, here in New York, uh, Splash That. I know Ben Hinman a little bit. Zip Drug. I've met Stu Libby. T- tell us a little about those two in particular. So Splash That is a um, experiential, as as Ben would say, experiential marketing. Um, the idea came about from his time at Thrillist and organizing events. You know, Eventbrite provided great infrastructure for ticketing. But when you're at a large company and you're throwing an event, that's really just one piece of the puzzle. Um, marketing and getting them into the door and getting everyone excited about being there is uh, just as important as executing well on the ticket side. So Ben launched Splash to solve that problem. And, you know, Really, they've been growing like weeds ever since. Um, they provide solutions both for consumers and enterprise. Uh, massive customer base at this point, millions upon millions of tickets sold, um, tons of events, and yeah, they're doing great. It, it's it's like a much more robust 
kind of platform to manage and market an event than Eventbrite. Is that fair? Well, uh, Eventbrite, you know, is a, is a publicly traded company and they're good at what they do, which is executing well on the payment side. You know, like when you go to their website and, you know, everybody has for one event or the other, it feels a little web 1.0. It feels, you know, you're invited to an event, get excited about it. And this is kind of the, the dirty dishes in the sink, drop down boxes and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, they're good at what they do, but I think Ben's kind of solving a a completely different need, which is just the full um, experiential marketing. And as he lowers that friction, it becomes much easier to make throwing an event part of your marketing strategy, uh, where it becomes more of just a one-click experience and a line item right next to maybe buying Google ads or uh, other digital spend. Got you. And I met that guy, Stu, uh, over at Sip Drug when he was starting out. He was telling me, yeah, I'm going to be delivering drugs around the city. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> right. wow. Okay. Tell, right. Uh, how does that work? Uh, and then I, I see you guys have invested. What's, what's going on with zip drug? Zip drugs. Pretty exciting. I, I think, you know, coming from a Columbia business school, you'd love all the business model innovations and, and aspects of on-demand drug delivery mm-hmm. that exist in this vertical, but not other verticals. You know, I come from a logistics background. I used to be a software developer designing um, sort of CAD design software for distribution centers and unit economics are, are key in logistics. And with prescription drugs, you have a bunch of exciting new sort of different elements than let's comparing delivering groceries or something like that. Mm-hmm. One is the product is much smaller. Uh, the delivery agent can carry... 40 deliveries at a time. It's a hub and spoke model. So, you know, you're picking up from the same place as opposed to 30 to 40 different restaurants. Um, so you can consolidate orders. And, you know, beyond that, when you look at the demand side, um, this is a high value order. And oh, yeah. the consumer is often willing to pay. A certain, you know, I think in their mindset, I don't, I don't believe anybody does the math when they order seamless. But if you're ordering a five dollar sandwich, a three dollar delivery fee seems a little steep. But if you're ordering one hundred and fifty dollars worth of prescription drugs, um, a delivery fee is is easier to swallow, if you will. <laughs> you know, I could go, I could go on. I mean, there's, there's, you're, you're kind of. In a time of need, uh, you're sick in many cases, so you're more willing to get delivery, and, and delivery just makes for a much happier experience. So, yeah, when we when we met Stu, I want to say it was might have been late 2014, early 2015, not sure the exact date, but you know, we met him. He is, I mean, even without this amazing business model, uh, he's a killer. So, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. It's a very easy decision. Yeah, I see that, and and based on your on the logistics background, that I could see how, why that clicked in. Well, real quick, what's the regulatory uh, landscape on that? The regulatory landscape. So, um, covering the data um, or transacting with any of the data, the customer information. Obviously, you have to be HIPAA compliant. 
mm-hmm. which is easier now than you'd think. I mean, as technology moves along, AWS now offers sort of databases that are HIPAA compliant. There's more plug and play solutions for consumer healthcare companies that have to fall underneath those those guidelines. But beyond that, um, if I gave you my prescription um, and my license or some information, you could pick up my prescription today. And that's kind of been the case for a while. And it makes a lot of sense because obviously um, in many cases, the person receiving the prescription is sick and unable to travel to the pharmacy. I see. I see. So, I mean, the, the nature of the business made it um, much easier to kind of launch and, and go to market uh, because there wasn't much, and it, there can't be really much regulation preventing people from helping out other people picking up their prescriptions. Right. And, and that, that's interesting, though, that on the delivery side, the folks who are doing the deliveries don't have to be get special clearance or insurance or so, something like that. Right now, it's kind of like just like delivering food, right? Well, the cargo that they're carrying is is much more important than food in some cases. So insurance is a bigger play here. Um, and insurance is an important component, both protecting the delivery drivers or the bicyclists and the couriers um, and the patients themselves. So insurance is a larger component of this business. But outside of that, uh, yeah, yeah, it's all good. Everyone listening knows that there, there's a, a negative mood out there in the investment community, but especially so in the on-demand space. But it seems like in this context, um, this is a need to have. It's not like um, you know food or something else where they where they have lots of alternatives. If they're sick and they need these drugs, that that's a a real problem that you guys are solving. So very very interesting stuff. Thank thanks for sharing. But since you guys are generalists, and you know. We as investors get hit with this fire hose of ideas and people. Um, I was curious how you organize yourself. What's your process as you engage this this fire hose of of technology and and opportunities? So I'm an engineer by trade, and um, I at Red Sea gravitate to more of the emerging technologies, whereas whereas Scott has just such a keen eye for brand and you can see that with his investments in sweet green nest outdoor voices you know i could go on but yep. he he has sort of an amazing ability to recognize a an upcoming shift in demographics that's going to create a new a new market a new demand and investing in the company that's that's going to meet that need Whereas I uh, geek out on on code and and sort of bits and bytes and stuff. So when I first started, um, you know, once again, new fund, trying to optimize top of funnel. And when that happens, if there's if there's sort of a technology that's peaking the hype cycle, let's say where we are in VR this winter, this coming spring, it's it's really difficult for a new fund to compete in that space um, because capital becomes a commodity. Everybody's looking for a VR investment. And so really, if you're a newer fund, you need to be in that space a year before. I see. So when I started, Bitcoin was kind of 
cresting or approaching the crest of the the venture investment hype cycle. And, you know, I got deep into the weeds there. Um, and because of the timing, we, we made one investment um, in a sort of derivatives play that interacts with institutionals. And after Bitcoin, I kind of refined this investment approach, if you will, whereas I tried to identify uh, an inflection point in a technology maybe a year or so out. And this is obviously soft science, but um, I fortunately, I was out on the West Coast, had a chance to experience the Oculus Rift in the summer of 2014, got blown away. And, uh, you know, at that point, nobody knew when it was going to happen. So I thought to myself, it's far enough out that if I become an expert and know the landscape at this point, I can have a competitive advantage in identifying new opportunities and investing in them as a new fund. You know, I dug into the space, you know, red, 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 went to every conference and um, just kind of reached out on the content side. There were maybe three or four players, distribution Actually, there was really one player, Viridio, which we invested in, um, mm -hmm. and just sort of a few players. So it wasn't difficult to kind of complete, comprehensively map out the landscape. And then the second part of it really is primary research. So it's trying out the devices and coming up with a thesis that is uh, sort of independent of all the information available on the internet. So hopefully this is something that's going to give you a contrarian view or a slightly different view. And then of course, you know, wrapping it all up, invest along the, the thesis. Did that with VR and uh, we ended up investing in uh, two companies over the right. past two years. Yeah. So you do this deep immersion, uh, you map out the landscape and then you engage with the technology yourself you know, first principles, you develop, God forbid, your own opinion, right? <laughs> right. Um, and then you kind of have a prepared mind. So you hit Bitcoin, was your first deep dive, virtual reality, and what's next, if I may ask? Uh, well, you know, given my former career, I'm always on the lookout for logistics, which is a very difficult sector to invest in at the seed stage. Heavily capital-intensive uh, the industry as a whole is not very open to the entrepreneurial ecosystem the way um, software or some other industries are. But next, uh, next we'll be taking a look at drones. Um, you know, the FAA is kind of stalled on releasing regulation, integrating commercial use of drones into the national airspace. So, you know, I think everyone with an opinion sees regulations or widespread use of drones, maybe 2017, maybe later. Um, so pretty far off. Per your approach, perfect time to, to perfect do time. Dive. Right. To I got you. Yeah. Uh, all right. While, while we're on drones, why don't, why don't we, uh, why don't you catch everybody up uh, in a general sense on what the landscape as you're mapping it out now is looking like with drones infrastructure, security, regulation, what, what's, what's the scene like? So 
most of the manufacturing is done by a handful of players. And um, when you take a look online, there are uh, just, I'd say, a new drone being released every year, most being produced out of China. Uh, that appears to be heading along the lines of be- becoming a commodity. We're having commodity-like tendencies. Mm-hmm. Tough to differentiate in that space, especially from the seed stage. So the software to, I mean, you could you could make two bets. You could bet along general infrastructure and hope that the rising tide lifts all boats. So general infrastructure would be uh, sort of fleet tracking and telematics. It could be surveillance systems, uh, the actual control of the drones, mm-hmm. security systems, sort of hedging against drones. Um, and then I know the FA is working about mapping out airspace, but there are some startups in that space as well, uh, sort of airspace traffic control. On the other side, you could invest into, I guess, what you would call the picks and shovels of the drone industry, which are the immediate uses which um, are earning earning revenue right now. Uh, so that's going to be pretty much surveillance. And surveillance is the key sort of first use case for drones because you can launch these drones on private lands um, without well, the FAA has released guidelines, but you can get an exemption and mm-hmm. you can uh, sort of monitor, run and a bit independently. Uh, and you can, let's say, survey oil fields, agriculture, this, that. It's easier for drones to operate in that space because drone payload and how much they can carry is limited at the moment. So a camera sort of fits right within that sweet spot. So less regulated, more open spaces can make money now, farmers, crops, oil fields, I I get it. Um, What do you think the landscape is going to look like, uh, you know, five years from now in cities, in the U.S. in particular, with drone usage? Uh, Well, the FAA has stated that it is, it intends to integrate um, drones into the national airspace, sorry. Mm -hmm. So they will be there. Uh, the government is committed to putting that regulation in place. Whether we see them um, within, you know, X number of feet above the ground yeah. um, to be determined, I, I, I kind of wouldn't want a constant buzzing and packages flying above my head in New York. There's right. kind of enough going on. <laughs> but the the radical, and this goes back to my sort of logistics um, heritage, if you will, is radical unit economic efficiency of using a drone for logistics and delivery versus labor, um, I think makes this, makes this an inevitability. Now there's, there's going to be some headaches and, and accidents and this and that. Um, but I'm, I'm sure the regulation will kind of address those as they come up. So you're obviously uh, excited about the space. You, you see it as inevitability and will, over time, work out a lot of the issues as, as the technology improves, as more companies get into the space. What about, you mentioned Bitcoin, you did a deep dive. Um, we recently had Roger Ver on the show, two episodes, just fascinating. The guy was a, a pioneer, 
uh, in the Bitcoin community, obviously from the hardcore libertarian wing of, of the Bitcoin community, but just a, a fascinating guy who, who walks the walk, whether, whether you agree with him or not. Um, but since we had him on, uh, there's been a schism in the Bitcoin community. There's been what they're calling a constitutional crisis that has really you know, caused a lot of infighting. It's all about this block size debate. If you're willing, why don't you explain to us what that's all about and so so we can understand it and maybe how you see it playing out? So I think the Bitcoin world grew up out of um, people who were interested in the technology and then people, I mean, there's a clear element more than any other technology I've seen where people attached a uh, political idealism to the technology. And... You know, I see I see the roots of that in in the difficulties they're having right now uh, in deciding block size upgrade or, or maintain the same. Because when um, and this is kind of just repeating what what came out in Mike Hearn's blog post when Satoshi handed over the reins to Gavin Andreessen, uh, there wasn't much of sort of a, a ruling structure put in place to agree to make drastic changes and you know if you read the bitcoin developer daily mail list which i highly advise everyone read because it's very very entertaining um they they have difficulty coming to agreement and um then just sort of nothing progresses uh so that sort of ties back to the lack of the lack of ruling that was put in place. You know, they didn't want to hand over the reins or put a power in place who could define Bitcoin. It was supposed to be a sort of universally democratic system. Right. Um, and no central they, control distributed. Yep. But but they have a, but apparently this this is a serious issue, correct? It's 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 a so, a capacity issue. So the yeah the issue came up last year, I think became more and more um, visible or or top of mind when people began realizing the difficulty with getting transactions executed. So when miners build a block and then um, add it to the blockchain and then send that out to the rest of the miners for approval or, or to pick up that chain, um, they. The block has a cap of one megabyte, and Hearn actually points out it's a little lower than that. It's about 700 megabytes, but anyway. Mm -hmm. So this size limit limits the number of transactions that the Bitcoin network can process and add to the blockchain. Um, it limits the rate, people have said, between three and seven transactions per second, which is nowhere near what a global payment system needs to uh, handle the volume of, of kind of all its users. So the debate arose, we need to scale Bitcoin. And there was actually a conference on this called Scaling Bitcoin mm -hmm. um, to increase the block size so that more transactions can be processed, more people can use Bitcoin, and can, it can become more of a widespread tool or currency or, or payment system. Mm -hmm. And at that point, uh, the core developers who once again, 
Um, each one of them has no direct control over what gets approved or doesn't get approved. Um, they need to come to consensus. Um, two of them launched something called Bitcoin XT, which proposed to increase the block size to eight megabytes. Mm -hmm. Now, the other developers uh, agreed in general that the block size needed to be increased, but they disagreed with what they saw as just a ham-fisted increase in number without any sort of math supporting it. Um, being from the you know venture startup world, I I probably size with side more with the just eight megabyte approach um, because maybe this isn't the right approach for a payment system, but the the theory of move fast and break things mm -hmm. uh, has worked well with startups. So if I had to choose, I'd probably choose to to go with Bitcoin XT. Um, but that was kind of the debate and why it got stalled. You know, the Bitcoin XT uh, software was, was released. Um, and this January, if 75% of the miners had adopted it, then the Bitcoin XT protocol would go into place. You'd have larger blocks. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen. So we're still at the one megabyte uh, sort of limited transactions per second state. And this has actually been exacerbated by, so the political slant of this is if we increase the block size to eight megabytes or even higher, the requirement, the computing requirements to run a node in the Bitcoin system increase. And the theory is that it moves the ability to be a Bitcoin miner or run a Bitcoin node out of the hands of the average person and uh, into the hands of only those with advanced computers. So, i.e. The, the, the guys in China who are running these massive farms? Yes. So, you know, right now they control a, a large majority of the Bitcoin mining world. The thought was if we increase the block size limit, that's going to make it more difficult to run a node or mine and that's going to further concentrate the power of um, those with, you know, large, powerful mining farms. And if you run a majority of the Bitcoin mining farms, you can actually, or mining power, you can actually falsify transactions, create money, double spend, this and that. So the fear is concentration leads to breakdowns in the payment system. Uh, that raising the block size would lead to concentration and there are no sort of clear um, rule-making uh, sort of agreements or, or guidelines in place that would, would move the Bitcoin core developers to enact a, a change like this. I see. Mm. I, I've seen people argue the other side saying that it, it would actually have the opposite effect and smaller people would be would be able to to participate but uh, I'm not going to wade into this what what do you think on that political you know, issue the the feared 50% you know 50% of the hashing power the chinese miners take over if we raise to 8 megabytes um i think that a digital currency universally adopted would have 
benefits, even if it wasn't in its purest form. I, uh, you know, if I were in their shoes, I would probably take a different approach, which is, um, you know, work within the system first and then change the system versus stay true to your original mandate. Don't bend. And the risk there is not getting adopted. So if bending means that Chinese miners have, uh, like an unnatural power over mining, hashing or what have you, I, I would be fine with that as long as it means more people can use Bitcoin. Um, I think the Chinese miners have incentives to stay honest because as soon as they start fudging numbers or something like that, um, you know, people will stop using Bitcoin and then all their mining rigs Got it. Got it. are now worthless. Got it. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're in favor of a, a so-called constitutional amendment in the Bitcoin <laughs> world. Yes. Yeah. I think, uh, I think if I would have to vote one way or the other, I would vote on a block size increase. Uh, without math supporting it. I have to ask you this. Are you long Bitcoin the currency? Long Bitcoin the currency. Uh, you know, I think it will exist in some form or the other. That's a very uh, weak answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know a lot of people listening have a lot of Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, know, I, I, know, I know they wouldn't forgive me if I didn't ask you. I think it will. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not the person... Uh, I mean, I'm not running a node and I'm not monitoring the block on a daily basis. So right. the blockchain, so I would not listen to me, but uh, <laughs> I think it'll exist in one form or the other. I think, you know, a lot of people, myself included in 2013 thought um, the, there was this coming inflection point where the banks would now be involved and would be either settling securities or transacting on the blockchain or something like that. And that would create an influx of volume. Um, and then once the banks were involved and corporations were involved, then you would see hedges and all sorts of other sort of securities expanding the blockchain. And with the banks, the financial banks in New York have clearly move towards a private blockchain without the Bitcoin currency. And so for me, that was depriving Bitcoin of, of a great opportunity to kind of get involved in the wider financial system. Mm -hmm. Got you. No, that's helpful. And uh, we accept all your caveats. Understood. <laughs> right. Um, I wouldn't be, <laughs> I wouldn't be in venture if I didn't say, uh, don't hold me to that after every second. I know. I hear you. I mean, I'm predicting 2017, so obviously this is all... Right. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. Yes. Right, let, let, yeah. Let's dive into something you are much more invested in of late, virtual reality. You mentioned it before. Uh, the Rift is uh, is on pre-order now for 599 bucks. You can pre-order an Oculus Rift. What does this represent? Is it, How much beyond the, the gaming community does this go? Uh, how much beyond the gaming community? Well... Right now, if you bought a Rift, uh, well, let's say, let's fast forward to March, you buy a Rift, the majority of the content that you're going to enjoy is gaming. Uh, so I think they'll, there will be quite a few disappointed people when they sort of exhaust all the 360 video. Um, so, you know, we still need... Uh, more content out there, more compelling content, and content that is 
adapted to this new um, this new tool. So um, gaming, I, uh, gaming, I think is going to be the primary use case. I mean, mm-hmm. this is what everybody says. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, the other we've invested in infrastructure tools that will, and this is one of our VR thesis mm-hmm. theses, mm-hmm. is tools that allow people to create content. So more sort of collaborative uh, social tools or um, building designer developer tools that are going to expand uh, the content. Uh, we think are going to be sort of key in, in VR adoption over this year. Yeah. We'll expand on that. If you don't mind, are you talking about collaborative applications in, in industry or talking about social, some kind of new form of social networking? What, what do you mean by that? I mean, just raw content in, in one form or the other. I mean, if you buy a Rift now and you go to the Oculus share platform, you could exhaust the available content, the, you know, either the CG animated experiences or the 360 videos or the games, you could exhaust that, um, or at least the, the sort of premier content available in a month. Mm-hmm. So what we need is, I think we need the Reddit or something where whatever weird thing you're into, you can find a niche and you can find a hundred 200,000 other people who are into that same thing and just talk about it, you know, share ideas, information, discussion. Um, so that, that sort of content that you can get lost in and it's always organic and changing and updating, that's going to put you in the rift day after day. When, when, that, when that appears, and we actually we invested in a company that, that's kind of uh, that's working in that space called Janus VR, where it's a virtual reality programming language that will allow you to create your own personal world. Um, and people can come to it, hang out, you know, build their own worlds and everything like that. And it's, it's that kind of organic content that I think has become very crucial this year. Got it. Okay. I, I think I'm catching up to you. You're saying hey, with the Rift, you wear it, you're alone, you exhaust the library in a month, and that's that. What needs to happen is a collaborative community environment where people can share ideas, create, and completely immerse themselves. And and some of these companies you think are facilitating that, and that's part of your thesis. Is that? Am I getting? Yes. It? Yep. Uh, that's right. Have you seen this guy Chris Milk? Uh, yep. His films. They call it the. You know, he calls virtual reality an empathy machine. I've heard Chris Dixon talk about this. You know, he has these films where you know you are suddenly transported into you know, uh, the living room of a Syrian family being bombed in Aleppo somewhere and talk about feeling empathy, right? Um, instead of watching it dispassionately from your television screen or listening to it, uh, a newscaster tell you that there's been a bombing in Syria, you, you're there and you're seeing the family's reaction, etc. How shall I put it? Is that one of the key benefits of VR in general, that the ability to create empathy? I think it depends on the kind of person you are. So um, I'm married with a gear VR. And when we're sitting on the couch and I pop it on, I'm basically saying to her, you know, I'll I'll see you in an hour. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you want to be truly immersed in that experience and you don't care about the sort of real life environment around you, 
um, empathy would be key. If you feel like having that emotional connection to content, yes. Uh, but I think you have to, kind of like hypnotism, you have to be willing to to kind of go into it and have that emotional experience. Um, and some people, if you think about this, you long day at work, you come home, you put on a headset, that honestly is, is not going to be the relaxing experience that I want. I mean, I'm thinking about it from a consumer lens. Mm-hmm. Um, educational, sure, all that kind of stuff. But from, I guess, just where I'm sitting, um, I don't know. That would not be the use case that I, I would buy the Rift for. So uh, as an investor, as you sit here doing your deep dive, wh- where do you think the big opportunities are going to be a year, two years from now in virtual reality? So, you know, over the past year, we've taken a close look at the infrastructure. Uh, those are kind of all the investments we made in VR. Um, and then after you put, um, let's say, one to 10 million headsets in the homes of people, I think we're going to find out what use cases really resonate with people. And we don't know what that is because at this point, nobody on a wide scale is using VR on a daily basis. Um, so trying to predict that, uh, f- from my point of view, is impossible. So at this point, once that inflection and we begin to see this, you know, this one aspect of VR has really resonated with a group of users, they're coming back to it day after day, they're creating this new world. And I think it's naive to think that VR is... Uh, the, the end goal of VR or where we are five, ten years from now will be to replicate exactly reality because who knows if we have, if you have the ability to design any world or you completely manipulate your surroundings, mm-hmm. would you choose to replicate reality? Who knows? Yeah. I mean, when they put out, um, when people first had smartphones, they were trying to replicate the web browser on the desktop um, because that's the framework that they were familiar with. Obviously, that that was not the best use case of a mobile phone and the best way of mobile web. So I think a lot of people are thinking about VR the same way as, well, the best use case is to replicate exactly reality. But as the technology advances, maybe that's not what we want. I mean, I can imagine this being incredibly helpful to disabled people, uh, yeah. allowing them to enjoy life more, perhaps. Um, I could imagine enormous you know, educational benefits for kids. Phil Toronto was telling me, he, he thinks, you know, just imagine you know, learning about astronomy in the solar system with, with this interactivity uh, instead of reading in a book. I was just really intrigued by the description that, that Chris Milk was, was giving about the uncharted territory, to your point, that exists in filmmaking and documentaries and just the creativity as this sort of new art form evolves. What about, real quick, augmented reality? Are you, are you spending any time on that? There's, there's kind of, you know, the second or third result on a, on a Google search is always going to be AR versus VR. Um, if you buy... <laughs> a Samsung Gear VR, mm-hmm. it has a tool that will turn on the camera um, and, you know, you're still looking at the screens inside the headset, but now you're looking at the room through the camera, through the video camera. 
and it still has a couple indicators, notifications, sort of icons floating in the screen. That's, in some sense, augmented reality. Um, I think the technologies overlap substantially. I see. So I think there'll be, I think the device will be the same. And I think there'll be use cases where you want an immersive world and you want to design every pixel of your surroundings and control it in a, you know, in whatever fashion you want. Whereas there's going to be times where you're going to want, for lack of better words, augmented reality. You're going to want to see information about your surrounding worlds in a sort of seamless fashion. So they're really, it's really a convergence. It's not one versus the other. Sure. And I mean, you could, you could imagine using augmented reality and you're looking down the street and a little icon pops up, you've got an email, and then you open that email and now it's taking up the majority of your field of view. At what point does that become virtual reality if it's covering 98% of your reality? You know, it's, for me, it's, it's kind of more of a spectrum. I mean, this is fascinating stuff. Let's have you back on as you continue on these deep dives and bring your insights back to us. I really appreciate it. Julian, thank you very much, my friend. Dave, thanks for having me. It's been, uh, it's been an honor. Show you around, give you a taste of business, you know? 